0: Okay, definitely blonde toner because I've got blonde <laughs> hair and the water on board makes my hair brassy. I hate brass. I always wear lipstick every day. A lipstick and a spritz of Chanel, that's how I roll every day. Um, oh, and a bum bag. Absolutely a bum bag. Bringing back the fanny pack.
1: Hello and welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories of rural and regional women across Australia. Hello, I'm Sky Manson. I'm your host for this episode. You are going to love our guest today. For many years now, New Zealand-born Fiona Baird has been bringing fun, fashion and a feverishly hard work ethic to her work as a stockwoman on live export shipments from Australia throughout all of Southeast Asia. Her story is so unique because she doesn't allow the grit and grime of working with animals all day to dampen her style standards of well-done hair and strong red lipstick. But it wasn't always about live export for fee. She's lived a colourful life with a few stops and starts since her childhood days on a farm in New Zealand. I started by asking her, on reflection, how she feels about the path she's led in life so far.
0: Um, I definitely think growing up in the country of New Zealand on the cattle stations, cattle and sheep stations, then uh, going away to school and to study, it definitely backgrounded me for where I am today. You know it's um, I was my folks were great people. they had great morals. Um, you know, they really raised us well, and and Mum raised us to be strong people as well. So, yeah, no, I've definitely had a great background to lead me where I am today. and yeah, Dad's death, sudden death about five or six years ago, had me definitely step life up a notch for sure. That's been a big change in my life, so yeah.
1: What happened then?
0: Um, With Dad, he had been feeling a bit crook actually over Christmas of 2014. And, you know, being a sort of 65-year-old ex-farmer from New Zealand, doctors weren't his our favourite stop. So I think he probably just left it a bit late and he actually had melanoma. And um, by the time he was diagnosed, to the time he passed away, it was very fast. It was only three weeks. So it, I was in the Kalimantan in the jungle at the time. And um, so I didn't really know what was going on. He didn't want to worry me about it. And um, yeah, when I got back, he I took him home from the hospital and looked after him for four days and he passed our home. Yeah, But instantly I'd gone from young woman living the dream just doing my you know doing my own thing to uh, being the head of the family as my mother she's also she had just been diagnosed with dementia so it was pretty
1: hectic was that a really defining time in your life
0: absolutely probably the most defining time in my life um uh, dad was as you know the fathers are always the head of the family and um the guy we go to with any pro- if we've got problems or support we need advice and he we used, his name we used to call him was coach he was like our coach you know we had such a great family unit and dad sort of just he he ran us basically we loved it and we had so much fun but yeah it just all changed within yeah a couple of weeks and as i said mum was she was starting to get quite ill at that time and Uh, my brother's wasn't much use so yeah I just instantly became head of the family and um, quite a full-on time for about two years there it was really hectic I was trying to juggle working away and supporting the family uh, while mum was at home with my brother and I had carers looking after her as well during the day yeah it was a very dark time actually those those two years but I came out the other end and I've come out stronger and I could not have survived it without um, my New Zealand family and the great friends that I have around the world, it's been, it, they've been fantastic. They got me through for sure.
1: So what were you actually, what stage were you at in your career when, when this happened? What were you doing?
0: So I was up at that point, I was up in Borneo. Um, we had just t- delivered 2,000 head of uh, Douglas Daly breeder cattle up to um, a guy that owns a palm plantation in the middle of the jungle. So I'd been up there, Probably about six months already, setting up the ranch and training and getting everything organised. And um, that's where I was up there. I, was, I got the phone call while I was in the jungle. So, of course, getting out of the jungle was a mission in itself. So, it was a what did series you have to do. Of
1: small,
0: it was a series of um, paying people off to get small plane rides back to the mainland of Indonesia and then finding a flight back to um, my, my mother and father were in Brisbane at that stage. They moved over here a few years ago behind Michael and I. Yeah, so it was a bit of a mission to get home. And it uh, it took a couple of days actually to get home from where I was. So I had a lot of time to think about it and conjure up an image of what I was about to see.
1: You say that this was a time in your life which made you reconsider everything. What did it make you reconsider?
0: Oh, I think it had me
1: question family values
0: as well. I mean, anyone that has experienced grief within the, the immediate family unit, quite often, you know, you could have a perfectly normal great family and the next minute someone's um, passed away and it creates drama. You know, there's money involved, there's issues involved and um, that's something I was really unprepared for. I thought we were a super solid unit and um, when you've got a couple of siblings I mean, um, and this is, no, this is no different to... A lot of people have the same story. And I was really embarrassed about it at first. But now I realise so many people have been through this, where a family can just blow to pieces through grief. And it brings on some crazy emotions and crazy thoughts and crazy actions. And unfortunately, I went through that with um, my family, my siblings, yeah.
1: In a career sense, mm. uh, how, how did it change things?
0: So I was... Uh, In working with the Exporter Supply Chain Assurance System, SCAS, in market, I'd been training um, local staff for the exporter, uh, Perth-based exporter, and um, with the Douglas Daly Breeders that were up in Kalimantan, I was sent up there to train the blokes and get everything sorted out. So I was working in between, I was travelling up to Vietnam, Malaysia and Jakarta where we had supply chains, doing the training of our local staff, setting up um, facilities, um, ensuring everything was running, good, uh, running well, and also up in Borneo, setting up the ranch, training, breaking in horses. Yeah, it was a really, really busy time of my life.
1: If we can rewind just a little bit, how did you yeah. end up in there? How did, how did you end up in the live export industry?
0: Uh, so, I was a makeup artist in Melbourne. I travelled to Melbourne in 2014 as a makeup artist and I ended up, um, she she was a pretty hard old business to get into in Australia. I thought it would have been a lot easier um, because I was quite involved in New Zealand. Can you tell
1: me a bit about that too? Because I just think it is fascinating that you were a makeup artist having come from yeah. a, a background in farming, right? That's right, isn't yeah. it?
0: That's correct, yes. We um, grew up on cattle stations in North Canterbury of New Zealand. My father managed Coromeco Farm and Mendip Hill. So we grew up out on um, big stations. And then I went away to study in uh, school in Marlborough and up to Auckland. And much to my parents' dismay, because I had really good grades, I wanted to study art. And um,
1: What made you study art? Where, where did that creative desire come from?
0: Um, I've always, my, actually my great great grandfather was a very famous musician in um, Akaroa of New Zealand they were French, my fam- family from New Zealand and he was a really different sort of a bloke, he used to sing and dance and act and muck around, he was very famous like well known in Akaroa, that small town uh, Wongi was his name Wongi Hunt and I think I have a couple of cousins that are a bit m- like myself as well, we're arty we love drama and Um, yeah, contemporary art and singing and acting, all that sort of thing, yeah, quite confident. And um, I don't know, I just have had an eye for art ever since I was a child.
1: And so it led you to
0: study at university where? In Auckland, Auckland uh, Institute of Technology I studied. And I studied Māori language as well um, because my boyfriend at the time was Māori. So, um, yeah, I I wasn't really that interested in it, to be honest, but... um, (laughs) Blitzed it. I blitzed it. And it was more for his mother, actually. Um, blitzed it and blitzed the art. Went str- and once I did that one day's work with David, who was a cameraman, my partner at the time, um, I did. he called me in to give a hand to put foundation on his, what they call talent, which is the actresses. And I remember getting a paycheck for $400 for one day. And back then that was huge. Mm. So I just said, I'll oh, stuff, stuff the um, AIT. I'll go and do a year of makeup study so I started with Samala Robinson in um, Auckland for about eight months and um, blitzed that as well and then I just went on to do lots of videos and I did some uh, work on a few movies in New Zealand and I did a lot of still photography work um, but yeah and then I decided to take my talent to Australia where it turned out everybody Look was out. just talent <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a bit more of a pull there
1: So what happened? What was that like? The, you came to Australia with big expectations oh, And it wasn't quite what you had thought Well it was the day Princess
0: Mary married Frederick mm. And uh, all of my New Zealand family came to see me off All my cousins came to see me off at the airport Everybody was there And we'd been watching the wedding on the news At my Uncle Ray's house that morning before I flew out I arrived in uh, Melbourne and quite a few of my gal pals and guy pals had already moved over to Melbourne and they had, they were renting a big old doctor's surgery in Footscray and so that's where I went to this place in Footscray to stay there and there would have been about maybe 15 people living in that house. It was freezing and there was just people you know, sleeping in any nook and cranny. It was really hectic but it was great. I stayed there for about six weeks until I got another place, another apart, um, house in East Melbourne. But, oh, shivers, it was rough as cuts, I've got to say it. And coal, I'll never forget that. And I actually started, I worked for a little Spanish guy in Footscray for that six weeks. I was a waitress in his bar. And then I got, um, I worked, did a bit of work with um, Brazilian waxing and beauty salons. The main salon I worked was where all the A-list of Melbourne went to have their nether regions taken care of. <laughs> Worst job I've ever had. I hated it.
1: Was it? it yeah. So you, you did end up back in cattle stations in Australia. How did, how, what's the transfer there? How did that happen?
0: Okay. Well, I had been, as I said, i have been working in the um, waxing salons and doing a couple of little makeup jobs here and there. Um, and my Uncle Ray, who was my favourite uncle in New Zealand, he passed away very suddenly, and the day that I found out, I just said to myself, I even remember I was walking down the main street of Melbourne actually in the afternoon when I got the phone call and I just said to myself, right, righto, stuff this, life's too short, I'm changing my life today. So I went home, I, was on, I took the train home, um, and I had a map of the world actually in my room, a really large map rolled up. I pulled it out, got to Australia, shut my eyes and plonked my finger indirectly onto Camerwell. And I decided, right i I'm going to suss out Camerwell and try and get really? a job to Gillaroo. That's a true story, yeah.
1: Amazing. I love that story. And so, yeah, like, how did you do that at that stage? Was Facebook in existence? Did you just put the feelers out? Um, or did you have contacts?
0: No, I didn't. No, I wasn't on Facebook at all at that time, No. It was 2005. Read lots of books, and I had been looking into being a jillaroo. I was too shy. I, I was too shy to be a jillaroo. It was. It seemed so exotic to me, you know. Um, and I had great horse skill, so I knew I could do it. But I was just too shy to get in there. I didn't know how. And I thought, well, if I go and work at a pub in the outback or on, a, you know, somewhere with stations, I'm sure to find to meet people that are in the industry. So yeah, I got out the directory back in those days. And I know, I can't remember the number you used to ring, but used to be able to ring directory. What was it?
1: 122. There was a few, wasn't there?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember. God, it seems so long ago. Anyway, I called directory and asked if there was a um, pub in Cammerwell. I didn't know what Camerwell was at that point, um, but I knew it was in the outback um, looking at the map. And I got the phone number for the she put me through to the post office hotel in Camerwell and Billy Palmer, a mate of the owner, was, he was there. He's from Toowoomba, old Billy. And I said, um, I'm Phoebe, I'm calling from such and such. I wondered if you had any work available. And he said, oh, you're just in luck. The last Irish barmaid's caught a rash off one of these road workers here. She's away getting treated. So I might push her and, um, what do you reckon? You can get up here. When can you get up here? And I said to him, I'll get a bus from Melbourne, because I didn't even know you could fly at that point. I mean, I didn't know what the situation was. So I just said, I'll get a bus. And I, he said, um, righto, can you pour grog? He said to me, and I just said, no, I've never poured booze in my life. He said, but I'll, I'm willing to give it a shot. <laughs> and he said, right, that's all I need to hear. Get up here as soon as you can. And so I jumped on a greyhound, and it was 72 hours later. Oh, I arrived in <laughs> Camerwell. I didn't was met by Noel and Colleen in the middle of the night. They came and picked me up from the bus stop just down the road from the pub. And I remember getting up in the morning, walking outside. I'd never seen an Aboriginal person before. And, um, yeah, I shit my pants, actually. I was (laughs) like, wow, I couldn't believe it, where I was. They gave me a Keys to the Land Rover. They gave me a Dixie uh, Dixie Chicks cassette and a baseball bat. And I said, you'll be needing all three of these. And... At that point, they were serving Aboriginal people down one side of the bar and um, white people on the other. And, of course, I cracked up, and um, everyone sort of just laughed at me. And I remember the first customer came in, and he said, yeah, I'll have a pint of gull, thanks, love. And I was looking for the gull beer. I couldn't find it. I said, oh, no, we don't serve gull here, sorry. And it was gold. He was saying gold, but I didn't understand him, The the deep Australian twang so that and I had a ball and I got that pub pumping for six weeks we raged yeah it was great I had, it was the greatest time I loved it.
1: Did you sort out the divide between the whites and the indigenous people?
0: Yeah I think it was on my third day a bloke came in and uh, threatened me with a machete for a box of VB and that's the old baseball bat got its first that was its debut with me and um, he said he actually, That bloke came back about three hours later and asked me on a date. It was quite funny. Oh, They were good guys. They were brilliant guys. But I guess, I don't know, that I, don't really, I didn't look into it too much. I just, it, is, it was what it was and um, everyone seemed very happy and things worked perfectly, so I didn't make a big grammar
1: out of it. But
0: Thank there's you. more
1: to your story. So can we skip ahead to how on earth did you end up on a live export boat?
0: At the Camelwell pub, I actually got in touch. I'd heard there was a job at a station outside of Mount Isa at May Downs. Um, I applied for the job as a cook. I was too shy to to go in as a Jilleroo. I got mum to send me the Edmonds cookbook. And um, I went out there and cooked for Jimmy Hagen and the whole team out there. Uh, Then one day he needed somebody to help in the yards and ride a horse. And they pulled out this old pensioner for me. I was too shy to say I could ride. And my father had always said to me, Don't let anyone know that you can ride really well because you'll get the worst horse. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, um, because my father worked over here as a young runner too, back in his day. And anyway, they gave me an old pensioner and I could not stop blading cattle. That poor horse, I felt so sorry for him at the end of the day. And um, the manager just came up to me at the end of the day and said, yeah, we'll get another cook. You stop with us now. I was so wrapped. I couldn't um, get my teeth into it fast enough. You know, I was doing, I had people giving me camp grafting lessons in the weekends. I was just all over it. And, um, you know, as a new girl too, I think there was a couple of young girls there when I arrived. And um, I suppose their noses were a little bit out of joint when I got into the camp. I mean, I was really confident. Once I was in, I was in.
1: Mm. You
0: know, I thought because I, you keep saying
1: that you were too shy to do this, and yeah, and that you're too shy to do that. But you don't seem shy. Is did you used to be, and now, or are you still? No, so, I've did... always been really
0: confident, but mm. I was too shy, thinking that I wouldn't be up to scratch for Jilaru. My riding technique was more equestrian, and um, well, I just didn't really know what it entailed. I mean, I'd always looked at these women on the land of Australia as um they were goddesses to me you know it was seeing the equivalent in New Zealand these gorgeous Australian girls and their hats and their shirts and just the red dirt it was a dream yeah my dream job when I was a child I wanted to be a stock agent the first stock agent female stock agent in New Zealand that was my big dream when I was a child I just remember dad used to have a lot of books around the house that were written by Australians about on the land and I just loved it
1: we'll be back in just a moment But now, a word from today's sponsor. Today's episode of Life on the Land is brought to you by Blundstone Australia. The iconic boot brand is celebrating its 150th anniversary in 2020, an incredible landmark in the brand's history. It sees them mark 150 years of making the sturdiest, most comfortable and stylish boots for all walks of life. Established in Tasmania in 1870, Blundstone remains 100% family-owned and Tasmanian-based and continues to be shaped by the vision and values of its founders and owners. For 150 years, its commitment to durability, style and quality has not changed. The Blundstone range includes safety and casual styles for men, women and kids' boots that are easy to pull on and off whenever you're on the farm. Blundstone, tested by every generation since 1870. Tell me about your first boat trip. First time you stepped on a line yep.
0: Yeah, okay. So yeah, from the Jillerooing, went up to the Cape, did a couple of years up there as head stocky of, um, for Xander MacDonald at Dunbar. at the I uh, did the weaning camp and then I left to try out for the police in Queensland. I, d- I just knew I didn't fit in with everybody else that was trying out to be police. So I went up to Darwin, and a friend of mine had been doing the books for um, an export depot just out of, outside of Darwin. So I pulled in there and my highlights and all my bits and pieces and the swag and just pulled in to say day and meet everybody and uh, got talking to the owners and they invited me around to their house for a cup of tea and um, we got on like a house on fire. I started the next day in the yards. And it was about, I don't know, maybe six months into it, the exporter said to me, you should jump on a ship. He'd been watching me in the, work in the yards. And he said he'd be good on a ship. Jump on a ship. So I did. And I thought it was going to be my only ship. So I, I went and had an absolute ball, really lived every moment of it.
1: What do you mean by that?
0: I drank a lot of booze, actually. And um, I was with another six stockies. We worked hard, but we played hard as well. and it was um. Back in the old days, things were a lot. You know, it was a great environment. Actually, lots of and lots of stockies too. It was terrific.
1: Is that what you loved no, initially don't. about working on the boats? That it was a job, but it also had a great social aspect too.
0: Well, I had actually seen our sixty minutes report in two thousand and six. I was out. Um, I'd been contracted out from May Downs. Uh, Jim had sent me out to another place. To roll up barbed wire, I must have been the, being a naughty Jellaro, so I was cast out to this other property to roll up barbed wire for two weeks. And I remember this; uh, they had a program um, on 60 Minutes. Here, they had one story about Egypt, and I'll never forget watching that. You may remember it;
1: mm. it wasn't yes. very nice.
0: And I do remember at that moment saying, "I've got to get amongst that. I need to get in there."
1: Tell me more about about that. What what kind of changes did you know? That you could bring,
0: and as arrogant as this is going to sound, I find myself. I, you know, I'm. A, I think I'm a really great energy. I'm very um, particular about what I need and want, and I'm just. I don't know. Somewhere along the line, I've worked out how to how to get that from people. So I, I always knew that I would be able to um, definitely put, you know, push my weight around if I was in a situation where I could make change. So yeah, I. I mean, it was never a. I couldn't do it. It was always like an if or a when. Basically, yeah, I never doubted myself at all. I just didn't know when it was going to happen. I had to work out how I was going to get in there.
1: Paint me more of a picture of what it was actually like on, on the boat. So you had six other stockies, but, of course, there was crew and you're working with stock. And I imagine it was a, um, a hugely male-dominated um, job. Were you female?
0: Yeah. Yes, I was at that point. Um, no, there was another lady, Peggy, an older lady, um, Peggy, as you say, in Australia. Yes. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, um, but I was on board with six blokes and some of those guys actually work with me now and they've moved up in, uh, into office roles. But there was it was just a heap of young guys straight out of school or Marcus Oldham and, um, yeah, all the crews were all different nationalities back then. We had Filipino, Italian, Indians. Uh, it was just... Um, the male-dominated part actually worked in my favour, I think, because I was, um, you know, I was, I was out there. I was looking good and I had a great attitude and I guess, yeah, and I was a really hard worker too. And I am a hard worker and so that paid, you know, guys could see that. So they treated me as their equal from the get-go and I didn't take any shit from them either, which came naturally. There was a stage, yes,
1: but there yeah. was a stage, wasn't there, where you needed to call it and st- and stand up for yourself because t- yeah. to didn't take you seriously. Tell me about that.
0: So that was my first day. Um, the uh, Actually, it was the second morning, I think, the second morning. Um, something had happened that afternoon. I hadn't picked up on something and uh, one of the crew members came and um, sort of said to me, Your area of cattle, you need to go and do this, this and that. And the head stockman was there and he gave me a barrel in front of everybody. And anyway, so I slinked off to fix whatever issue it was. And um I was pissed off. I was so embarrassed and because I hadn't been trained, you know, no one I was trying to learn. It was day two. And um I remember the next morning roaring into the breakfast table, everyone was sitting there and I just said to the head stocky, don't you ever speak to me like that again if you want to, you know, you, you need to show me what to do. You need to teach me. So I become a good stocker. You don't yell and scream at me in front of people. How am I going to learn? And that from that day onwards, he took me under his wing. He was my mentor right up until I left um, that company.
1: Yeah. Tell me a bit about the part that mentors have played in your career trajectory.
0: Definitely with the live export. I, I mean, even with the Jillarooing uh, the employers that I had there were just I could not have done any better I couldn't have picked better um, People to start off with in the industry They were perfectionists So I was taught the right way from the beginning And then with the live export once again I had great I started out with Wellard. They were brilliant They put me through my accreditation um, They really had a lot of faith in me And they allowed me to um, Really get some great results And then um, One day Mr Ian rang me um, from Haling down in Perth and said, I girl, here you looking for some work I've got a boat going from Broome up to Jakarta I need you up there this date and see how you go and I'd never done a shipment by myself, I'd always travelled with another stocky, I'd been headstock person anyway I jumped on the ship and um, I didn't even have a bedroom, they, I slept in the lounge and they pulled a curtain and I got the cattle up there, did a great job came back and um, Ian just said, righto I need you to load up again and do it all over again, please, for me. And, I have, and I've been with him for eight years. So, yeah, um, before COVID, I was flat out back-to-back, for sure. Um, and also because I've got the um, fashion business as well um, up in Indonesia. So every time I'd do a shipment, I'd stop over in Indonesia and spend time up there. So I was hardly ever home in Australia. I'd come back every sort of six weeks and spend a few days seeing mum and getting her all organised, and I'd be off again, hey?
1: Tell tell me about Apple Tree Flat.
0: Apple Tree Flat. Apple Tree Flat started when I was working in Indonesia in market and I would wear kerchiefs, scarfs scarves around my neck. Always add a scarf to any outfit I was wearing. I never I've never dressed um, like your standard issue, Jillaro or Cowgirl. I've I'm I love Yeah, I've always sort of kept that Melbourne style about me, I guess. So when I was, I'd walk into facilities with heels and jeans and scarves and lipstick and all the rest of it, but you know, if something needed to be done, I'd be whipping the shoes off and in the pens, Um, which was to many people's fascination, especially over there. But so I started making my own kerchiefs and then I had to, because I was living over there, you're actually, if you're a foreigner, an expat, you must hire local staff. It's, it goes, it's just the unspoken rule. And I was out doing some gardening at my place one day, and the chief of our area, so every block that you live in has a chief, uh, basically a boss of the streets uh, in layman's terms, and he came mm. over and he said, you must, you must hire local people. You do not do the job yourself. And I said to him, you've got about five, minutes, five seconds to get off my, my lawn, buddy. But anyway, I took it, um, I took it seriously, and I, I got on to somebody and hired a couple of girls. And they were absolutely hopeless at cleaning. I, was, I didn't even really want anybody in my house, but they were really great girls. And I asked them if they had any other skills. And um, one of them said, yeah, I can sew. So I gave her a little project. She did a great job. And um, so I bought a really good sewing machine and asked her to work with me and start
1: making kerchiefs. And that's how it started. And do you continue to employ Indonesian locals?
0: Yeah, so it started out with um, the, the first girl city and then um, I, I had another couple of girls come and give me a hand as I got busier and then I actually, uh, there was a a friend of mine, a doctor friend of mine who had been living in market as well in Indonesia and Malaysia and he had had a domestic working for him and obviously you become quite friendly with the girls that work for you and he had, his family had also and One domestic in particular had been trafficked, and he called me. I was in Kalimantan when he called me, and he just said to me, look, I've got a situation here. I've got a young domestic that used to work for me. She's called me. She's hiding in Batam. She's being trafficked. She's managed to escape. I'm going to put $1,000 through to you. Can you organize everything? Get her a flight, blah, blah, blah. And can you take her in your house in Jakarta and just look after her until I sort something else out with her family? Um. So the, the, the young girl had obviously rung um, the doctor for help because, um, you know, obviously he had a few, few dollars laying around. And she was desperate. So we got her over to my place in Jakarta. And I had flown over from um, Kalimantan that night. I arrived in the middle of the night. She had already been picked up by my little offsiders that were living in the house with me as well, little Indonesian guys. And in the morning I got up, she was sitting on the couch. And I just said to her, no, there's no sitting around. You can get up. You can give me a hand. Um, you've got to just get it together and move forward You've escaped, you're going well, we'll look after you But you've got to stay active And I just asked her, what are your skills? And she said to me, I, I'm a great writer And I can sew And I, I said, well, it just so happens I've got a couple of sewing machines Welcome to the team, girl <laughs> And that's how it started And um, then we picked up another She had another couple of gal pals that were in a lot of trouble So we pulled them on as well and it just grew from there. And those girl, the first girls that I had have all gone on to start their own businesses and have been married and just their whole lives, yeah, their lives have just made
1: a complete turnaround. These girls must have been through some horrific things. Yeah. What did you see as your part to their uh, healing?
0: I think, well, the first girl I was telling you about just now, Satish, she I ended up getting her a computer. So uh, just a second hand computer so she could write I wanted her to stay active and she sat on that computer for three days straight and just typed and then she let me read it mm. and I mean even just talking about it now makes me feel sick yeah she, it's a tough life for those girls um, they say in, there's a saying over there in Indonesia for the families in the villages you know, on the day that a daughter is born the father will take the day off work, meaning he knows that that's his future income if a boy is born he'll continue working he won't even go home and uh, meet the new baby he'll just go home at the regular time end of the day so the girls are definitely there's a dollar sign above their heads especially for um lower income poverty-stricken families yeah it's quite terrible Mm. um yeah some of the stories were horrific you know um uh, shit. It's quite sickening actually we've, You know this, this in particular Working with these girls has If I ever hear any of my gal pals In New Zealand or Australia or, You know anywhere here in the western world Complaining about oh, I'm so busy and I've got study And I've got this and that I don't tolerate it anymore you know you know, We've got a choice We're so we're the luckiest woman in the world And I think we all need to realise that Our bad day is their worst day uh, Sorry our, our worst day is their a Dream day for them Yeah mm-hmm. Really,
1: and so, how does how do you have time for all this mentoring and nurturing, as well as um, looking after your own family and uh, being on the boats?
0: Oh, well, I've got a great partner, David. He's um, my childhood sweetheart. We met up again 29 years later. So he's just brilliant. We have great family friends as well. So that's been brilliant. He just knows me to a T. He's um, my rock. He picks up. He just knows if I need a hand, he knows where to pick it up. So he's great. And, of course, my, my exporter that I've been with for eight years, he's brilliant. Um, and they understand the situation at the moment with the COVID So everyone's uh, been, it's been great. I think everyone's just adapting at the moment. For me with my own, yeah, life is hectic and some days uh, I just want to turn my phone off. Mm. But I also love the action and the drama, you know, I love it. And I just love helping
1: people. We couldn't speak with you without mentioning, um, of course, that the, the live export vessel that was carrying cattle from New Zealand that capsized yeah. with the typhoon in the East China Sea. Yeah. Did you know those people?
0: The Filipino crew, yeah, some of the Filipino crew I'd sailed with. Um, definitely the captain. I had a lot to do with um, the Kiwi guys. No, I didn't know them, nor the Australian blokes. But I have been, as soon as it happened, um, I was actually in isolation in Townsville. I'd just come off a shipment myself. And the phone calls started coming because there were Kiwi stockmen, you see. A lot of people Mm. straight away thought it was me because I'm a well-known Kiwi stocky.
1: Mm.
0: Um, Yeah, I ended up turning my phone off in that hotel room for a couple of days. I was so anxious and upset. And it was really, uh, when you're a stock person, your mind goes to that place where those boys would have been. And it's not a very nice place. It's scary. Mm. Yeah, so
1: you... you uh, for what you've told me, you have said that you are shouldering a lot of grief over that incident. Why is that?
0: Well, directly I reached out to the New Zealand family of Lachie um They were around the same area, from around the same area as I am. And um, I knew that the sister was actually, she was had planned to be on that trip. And at the last minute she changed her mind oh. and her brother had taken her place. So I just reached out to their family because I'm a Kiwi and that's what we do. And I just knew, I mean, they're a family like my family. And um, I don't know, I've just built a great relationship with Fern over the last few weeks. I've just been here for her and um, just doing anything I can do for her with advice. Or, you know, quite often she's messaged me, right, what's the layout of the ship and what was here and what was there? Is there a chance this going to happen, blah, blah, blah. Mm.
1: Um,
0: I just would expect... If I was on that ship, because it, with COVID, it could have been any of us, you know, because uh, the shipments, uh, an exporter might charter a ship, and then the, um, another exporter might uh, might charter that ship directly after, and they'll ask the can you stay on and do the trip for us, rather than go, jump off and go into quarantine? It's just easier to stay on a ship now, so mm-hmm. you could be working for people you have never worked for before, and that was... The case I think with Lucas actually, I think he had done the trip prior with the exporter that had hired him. He did this one because he was, wanted to stay on the ship because the next trip was going to be that same his first exporter. Uh, so it's terrible. It's tragic. And it's, um,
1: yeah, do you see yourself having experienced so much as having a great responsibility mm. to um, break down the barriers and explain in like a female. Layman's terms sense What it is like to work in yeah. the, On live export boats and in the industry um, I think Well I'm well known because I was
0: one of the only Women, I was the only woman for a long time And um, I don't know I must be just very approachable I seem to get on with everybody and so I don't know, I just made a lot of friends and I feel uh, You know whenever Kids get on boats, these young kids are getting on boats so Often given my phone number if you get into You know if you have any questions, just ring please, She's great to talk to And it's because I'm super passionate and I want everybody that jumps on a ship to do the best that they can. And there's several things that I've been taught over the years that have really helped me in that job. Just little things that made my life so much easier. And I'm happy to pass those on to newcomers. And um, I don't know, I've just had really great results with cattle in 10 years, over my 10 year period as a live export stocky. So... There's obviously some talent there. I can handle the people as well. So that's a lot of, I do a lot of mentoring with that too. Just giving people the confidence to make sure if something's not right, they've got to stand up and and say something and fix it. Don't just say it. Get in and do something about it. Yeah.
1: In wrapping up, I yeah. I just love, I'm so fascinated by how you've um steadfastly just stayed true to yourself in that you love animals, mm. you love cattle, and you love fashion. When you get on your next live export boat, what goes mm. in your suitcase every time? What do you take?
0: Okay, definitely blonde toner because I've got <laughs> blonde hair and the water on board makes my hair brassy. So I hate brass. Um, definitely, I always wear lipstick every day. A lipstick and a spritz of Chanel, that's how I roll every day. Um, definitely earphones, I need music. Um, and... I'm just trying to think. Heels? Apple tree, flat. Apple tree flat shirts and kerchiefs. There you go. How's that? Um, oh, and a bum bag. Absolutely a bum bag. Bringing back the fanny
1: pack. So you can put your lippy in it.
0: Lippy. Um, if I'm smoking, I'll put a packet of fags in there if I'm on a smoking run. I'm on and I'm off. Depends where I'm at in life. Um, and my little notebook and pocket, pocket knife. And I often take a silver earring, actually, um, because that tells me if there's too much ammonia in the air oh. so it lets me know if um the ventilation's working well
1: so because
0: it goes uh, changes color that's the ammonia
1: do you do your hair each day and a hairdryer. when you're in the boat
0: i do it at night time i have a shower at night and i blow dry it and um in the morning it's i've got quite wavy hair so it's i love volume so i make it high and make it big and make it um yeah i, I keep my yeah i just dress like i would i obviously i wear old clothes um I've never worn jeans and a shirt, ever. I've always been shorts or lycra. I find, find like exercise gear is really good on the ship. Ah, yeah. you never
1: wear jeans? Yeah. It's amazing.
0: No, I don't. When I'm discharging cattle, I will represent the exporter tidily. I always put jeans and um, but I normally like crop top or something. You know? And <laughs> <In> the <laughs> kerchief. I've always got a kerchief. Yeah, they're brilliant. Kerchiefs are fabulous for any occasion. I've needed them for not just for sweat or around my neck but for other things too like tying up hoses or whatever they're great handy many uses
1: oh so good i love it what a legend yeah. that's the best uh well it's been a pleasure thank you so much for um letting us in on your story so beautifully thank you sky thanks for having me i've enjoyed it I really loved talking with Fee for this episode and I think I can now understand why the spring edition of Grazy Her coined her as the Queen of the Seas. I think she's probably the most well-dressed woman to ever have graced a live export vessel. You can read more about her story and see some beautiful images in the spring edition of Grazy Her on sale now in your local stockist or you can gift a subscription to a friend at grazyher.com.au. Thank you to today's sponsor, Blundstone Australia, which is celebrating 150 years in 2020. And also, thank you to you, the listener, so much for your warm welcome to this new podcast. We are just beyond stoked as to how it's been received. If you like this episode or any of the others, we would still love it if you were able to share it with a friend. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a rating and a review is still the best way for new people to discover these wonderful stories. We'll be back in your ears next week with another episode of Life on the Land.